So if you have your Bible, um, please turn to 1 Chronicles, and the scripture reading will actually be from chapter 17 of 1 Chronicles today. And it'll be 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 15. If you're a guest with us, let me add my welcome. Um, we're so glad that you're here. Hope that you'll be blessed for having gathered with God's people. We hope you've already been blessed for having gathered with God's people today. And in this time, as we're looking into the Word together, we're, we're in the middle of a series where we're walking through the historical books of the Old Testament. So we're taking one of those books each week this summer, and you found us on First Chronicles. So we hope that if you're just here for this one Sunday, you'll be blessed, that if you're here every Sunday, that you will be encouraged today as you hear God's Word, and that God will, through His Word, change us into the people that he wants us to be. So the scripture reading is going to be 1 Chronicles 17, 1 through 15, and Natalie Trock is going to come and read that for us this morning. Now when David lived in his house, David said to Nathan the prophet, Behold, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of the covenant of the Lord is under a tent. And Nathan said to David, Do all that is in your heart, for God is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, thus says the Lord. It is not you who will build me a house to dwell in, for I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up Israel to this day. But I have gone from the tent to tent and from dwelling to dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus shall you say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, to be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you have gone, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel, and will plant them, that they may dwell in their own place, and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more, as formerly, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel. And I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house. When your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. I will not take my steadfast love from him, as I took it from him who was before you, but I will confirm him in my house and in my kingdom forever, and his throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words, in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. Let's pray. God, we thank you that you have made really, really big promises and that you are keeping them through Jesus. Would you help us this morning to be reminded of how we fit into your story and to live for your glory. 
I can't make that happen. We can't decide together to make that happen. We need you. So Holy Spirit, would you come and would you meet with us? Would you lead us? Would you guide us? Would you change us? Would you help us to see Jesus for the great Savior that he is and to be changed? Spirit, please come and do this for our good and for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So this summer we are tracing the story of Israel, right, from the entrance of the promised land when they're getting ready to go in and Joshua, through the periods of the judges and then the kings, the divided kingdom, away into exile and back again. What we've done over the last several weeks is do almost all of that, right? We looked at Joshua, then Judges, then Ruth, kind of a little story set in Judges, and then the story advanced again through 1 Samuel, with kind of the last judge and the first king and the rise of David, and then 2 Samuel with David's kind of rise and fall as the king. It ends with his death, and then 1 Kings tells us about Solomon And he's the last one in the united monarchy. And then you have Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And then all the ones who follow them. And the rest of 1 Kings and 2 Kings. And then now, here we are. And the story goes back. You go, what What is going on here? Well, to kind of give everything away right at the beginning. The big idea this morning is this. That God's people live in God's place according to God's promise for God's glory. And we'll leave that up there for a minute so the kids have time to get it all written down and maybe the adults too. But especially the kids. I see all the clipboards and papers and pencils. Great job. God's people live in God's place according to God's promise for God's glory. Do you ever ask yourself some of life's Big questions like, who am I? Where am I? Like Emmett did, where we are in time. How did I get here? What am I supposed to be doing? And where is this all going? What, what is going on? Who, who am I? Where am I? How did I get here? Where is this all going? And what am I supposed to be doing now? If you're asking some of those kinds of questions, then you're asking the same kinds of questions that the original recipients of First Chronicles would have been asking. And First Chronicles answers that question by saying God's people live in God's place according to God's promise for God's glory. So let's look first at what happens in First Chronicles. That's what we've been doing as we've been going through. It's like, okay, what, what's just in there, right? As with Samuel and Kings, Chronicles, First and Second Chronicles, were originally one book, just the book of Chronicles. It was meant to be a single unit telling a coherent story. First Chronicles, the one we're looking at mostly today, we will look at some things in Second Chronicles, but First Chronicles has 29 chapters. Second Chronicles has 36 chapters. So this is a lot of material for these next two Sundays. It's telling a big, long story. 
And so, so far we've been seeing the story of Israel and Judah told in pretty much a straight line from Joshua right on through to the end of 2 Kings, where we saw the fall of Jerusalem and the nation go into exile. And that stops today with 1 Chronicles. 1 Chronicles is going to cover a lot of familiar ground. But it starts with something that's unfamiliar, and that's with genealogies. Genealogies. A genealogy is a list of people. Like this guy was the father of that guy and was the father of that guy and was the father of that guy and was the father of that guy. And then this guy was the father of that guy and that guy. And he was the father of these three people and they had this many kids and they had this many kids and this guy. And you can see where you might get tired reading that. Those genealogies are actually the first nine chapters of First Chronicles. Maybe it's why most of the stories you know are the ones from First Kings and Second Kings and Second Samuel. We said last year in the Pentateuch series that Leviticus is the place where Bible reading through the year plans go to die. Well, if you made it through Leviticus and you got to the historical books and those are mostly like pretty exciting and carrying you through on the narrative and wow, there's a lot of bad people doing bad things. This is so interesting. When you get to 1 Chronicles, that's where you're going to be sorely tempted again to give up or to skip. Like, how valuable, you know, we say every, every word is perfect and valuable. The Bible actually says that, right? And we go, yeah, but these are less. That's what we would tend to think, right? So we'll talk about them more in a couple minutes. We'll leave you with the cliffhanger there. Are they valuable or not and how? Starts with genealogies in chapters 1 through 9. And then this is where we start to get to familiar territory. The death of Saul is recounted in chapter 10. You may remember that happened at the very end of 1 Samuel. You had Saul's reign and then David coming on the scene and killing Goliath. And then David being on the run and Saul going after him. And then at the very end of the story for Saul, at the end of 1 Samuel, Saul and his sons die in a battle with the Philistines on Mount Gilboa. And that story is retold in 1 Chronicles 10. And it summarizes it by telling us this, that Saul died for his breach of faith. 10.13 tells us he did not keep the command of the Lord. Then in verse 14 it says he did not seek guidance from the Lord. He went his own way. He did what he thought was best, even though the Lord had told him something different. And he died for his breach of faith. The kingdom was ripped away from him and given to someone else. So that's the last chapter of 1 Samuel, the 10th chapter of 1 Chronicles, basically the same story. And then the rest of 1 Chronicles is the story of David. Chapters 11 through 29 is the story of David as king. So there's a lot, it's, it's covering the same time as basically 2 Samuel. So for, for like a minute I thought, you know, Aaron just preached on this three weeks ago. I'm sure he has a great manuscript and I can just do the do the same thing, because it has all the same stories in there, but it doesn't really. 
it covers the same time, but it's going to cover it differently, highlighting different things because of the audience who's receiving this book. So in chapter 11, David's anointed as the king. In chapters 11 and 12, we hear stories of David's mighty men, his 30 mighty men, and then the three mighty men who came alongside him and fought with him in his battles and helped win him, humanly speaking, the kingdom. Chapters 13 through 16 cover the Ark of the Covenant being brought to Jerusalem. You remember that it had a kind of a rough go the first time. They were carrying it the wrong way. There's a man, Uzzah, who tried to help and ended up dying because he touched the ark and no one was to do that. In chapter 14, there's a brief break to talk about David's family and some battles against the Philistines. But then in 15, it's right back. They're bringing the ark to Jerusalem. Now they're doing it according to God's word with Levites carrying it on poles. And there's great celebration. Chapter 16 has David's very long song of thanks to God. It actually combines Parts of Psalm 105, Psalm 96, and Psalm 106. And then chapter 17, which Natalie read uh, for us, the first 15 verses of, is the Lord's covenant with David, where David says, I want to build a house for you. I want to build the temple. And God says, you're not going to do that. One's going to come after you who's going to do that. But I'm going to build you a house that's going to last forever. And then there are a few more battles Chapters 18, 19, then David uh, does his census that Aaron talked with us about a few weeks ago that we don't exactly know why it was sinful. It seems like maybe it was sinful because he was trusting in the number of people that they had or wanting to boast in the number of people that they had rather than trusting in the Lord or boasting in the Lord. But even that's not said explicitly. We just know that everyone knew that what David was doing was wrong And they even tried to stop him from doing it, and he did it anyway. And then there's judgment from the Lord that comes. So that's in chapter 20. And then in chapters 22 through 29, we have preparations for the temple being built. So David's not going to build the temple, but he's going to make sure everything is ready Ago. So that's what happens in these 29 chapters of 1 Chronicles. Then 2 Chronicles, so if we think about it as like basically Saul and David, which 1 Samuel was Samuel, Saul, and David, and then 2 Samuel was David as king, and then 1 Kings beginning Solomon's reign. In 2 Chronicles, you have Solomon, who's covered in chapters 1 through 9, and then followed by all the kings of Judah after Solomon, all the way to the exile. That's in chapters 10 through 36. So again, we say, why do we have chronicles at all, right? It covers the same thing. Didn't we already have whole sermons about the content of these things? You're going to go through all the same things again and just tell us again that Jesus is the king and that he was promised and that he's, he's the perfect prophet and the perfect priest and the perfect king. That is still all true. And yes, this is a lot like 2 Samuel. Yes, and 2 Chronicles covers the same time period as 1 and 2 Kings, but the author of Chronicles has a different focus and therefore some differences in material when compared with Samuel and Kings. So, what are some of the differences? There's differences in things that he leaves out, and there's differences in things that he adds in. 
So on the leaving outside of things, the stories about David's personal life and family troubles, those are not present in First Chronicles. That's why most of, the, most of the things you know, it's not really because of the genealogy in the first nine chapters, because people do know how to turn to First Chronicles 10 and start reading there if they want to. Uh, the reason most of what you know about David is from First Samuel and Second Samuel is because that's where all the exciting stories are. David and Goliath, that's in 1 Samuel. It's not in 1 Chronicles. David running for his life and, you know, cutting off part of Saul's garment, saying, look at that, I could have killed you, but I didn't because I respect you because you're the Lord's anointed. That's not in 1 Chronicles. That's in 1 Samuel. So you think about the, the exciting things that David did, but then also the very wrong things that David did. David's census is mentioned in both, but David and Bathsheba, that story is only in 2 Samuel. And all the fallout from that. So Amnon and Tamar, that's only in 2 Samuel, not in 1 Chronicles. Absalom then killing Amnon, that's only in 2 Samuel, not in 1 Chronicles. Then Absalom running for his life and then coming back and leading a rebellion and getting stuck by his hair in the tree and getting killed by Joab. Those are the stories that like when you're kids, you're like, yeah, that sounds amazing. That's so cool. And those aren't in 1 Chronicles. Okay, so not only does it start out with nine chapters of genealogy, after that, it has significant chunks of this guy helped get this thing ready for the temple to be built. That's what the whole last eight chapters are all about. So it's not riveting reading the same way. Certainly for us, it's not riveting reading the same way that First and Second Samuel and First and Second Kings are. Another thing that's left out is the whole northern kingdom. You remember after Solomon, you have Rehoboam, his son, who says, oh, you, you think Solomon was bad. You know, I'm his pinky. That's, that's what you're getting ready to get from me, but a whole lot more. And the people say, yeah, thanks, we don't want any of that. And they form their own nation to the north, the nation that's known as the nation of Israel, and then it's Judah that remained in the south. In First and Second Kings, you have it like going back and forth, like this king was in the north, this king was in the south. So again, probably the exciting people and stories that you remember are the ones that aren't in First and Second Chronicles. So like Ahab and Jezebel. They're not there. Elijah and Elisha and fire falling from heaven and people being raised from the dead, all that stuff that, again, as the kids, you go, this story's awesome. That stuff is not in First and Second Chronicles. Once the kingdom is divided, the northern kingdom is ignored entirely. Only the southern kingdom, Judah, where the descendants of David ruled, is included in this History. So on the surface, it's covering the same time frame. If we think about it, starting with the death of Saul and then going forward to the exile, it's covering, this, covering the same time frame as 2 Samuel through 1 and 2 Kings. But it does more than that. It's not just about what it leaves out. It tells the story differently than those other books. The author has a different focus because he has a different audience. You say, how do you know that? You know, because this isn't like one of the New Testament letters where it's like, Paul, to the church in Philippi, right? Where you go like, ooh, I know who wrote this, and I know who he wrote it to, and we can try to figure out some of what that was about. We don't have that in here. We don't, 
even know exactly who wrote any of these books. A lot of people think that Ezra wrote First and Second Chronicles, and that's certainly a possibility, but we don't know for sure. Many scholars will just call whoever wrote this the chronicler. It's kind of a cop-out, but, you know, it, it works. First Chronicles is written to the people of Judah shortly after they have returned from exile in Babylon. Okay? That's what sets it apart. So 1st, 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, that story ends with Judah going into exile after Israel had already gone into exile. It covers both of those, the fall of Samaria as well as the fall of Jerusalem. But here in Chronicles, it's aimed at people who are no longer in exile, but who have just come home. So Samuel and Kings, that's kind of like telling the whole story to all the people who are in exile. Chronicles is telling a particular story to a particular people in a particular place. They have just come home. And well, how do you know that? Well, the very end of Second Chronicles, there are two key hints toward this. The very end of Second Chronicles actually goes a little further than the end of Second Kings. So Second Kings it ends with they went into exile. The end. Sad story. Second Chronicles does not end there. They go into exile, and then there's a few more verses that highlight the decree of Cyrus 70 years later saying, I have been told by the Lord to let his people go back to his city and I've been commanded by the Lord to build a temple for him there. So you have that in just the very last few verses of Second Chronicles. The story doesn't end with the fall of Jerusalem. It ends with the decree of Cyrus saying, go home to your land and build the temple again. The other hint comes in the genealogy. The genealogy actually includes a list of the people who returned from exile. So the genealogy wasn't just old news to these people. They themselves are included. There's a list. Here are the first ones who came back to Jerusalem. So Chronicles is written to God's people who have very recently returned to God's place. And it was written to encourage them to hold on to God's promise and to live for God's glory. So it's not just that the chronicler is like, yeah, those exciting stories, we don't need those. We want real historians to study our stuff. That wasn't it. It's not about the stories that are missing. It's about how what replaces them is important for our understanding of the chronicler's purpose. And we'll see those as we look now at the message of First Chronicles. So we think about the message of First Chronicles. What is going on here? Well, first, let's think about God's people. God's people. That's who's reading this book. Particularly the ones from the nation of Judah who had gone into exile, been in exile for 70 years, and now have come home. See, when we look at the genealogies, 
And we're like, okay, Adam, I recognize him. So this genealogy actually starts all the way back at the beginning. Gets us quickly from Adam to Noah, just kind of like in a straight line, even though obviously there were tons of people who lived. During that time, it gets us a straight line from Adam to Noah. And then it gets us, you know, little bits about two of Noah's sons, but then it focuses in on Shem, who is the one who gets us down to Abraham, and then Isaac, right? And Esau and Jacob coming after Isaac. And there's a little focus on Esau for a moment just to recognize, okay, he's the father of Edom, and that's one of the enemies of Israel. And then it comes back to the main line and Jacob and then his 12 sons. And then there's a genealogy of each of the tribes with Judah placed prominently at the first and with the most information, getting us down to David, who's the king. And then near the end, there's a genealogy of Saul, who is the first king. Shows us where he came from. Because when we think about being God's people, and these are God's people, they would be asking. So they're, they're aware of the decree of Cyrus. They're aware, like, okay, I'm, I'm a Jew. I belong to this covenant people of God. But perhaps they're unsure about what that really means. You think about it. Most of the people who would have been coming back were not born in Jerusalem. They were born in exile. Seventy years is a long time. I mean, if, if our whole church, everyone who is here today, someone came and took us into exile and wherever I say we get taken into exile will become a bad thing. So we'll just imagine a place where we're taken into exile. No New Jersey jokes today. That, I said no New Jersey jokes today. <laughs> All right. Um, so we're taken away to a place we don't want to go. So of course not New Jersey. If, if we as a group of people, and we're the only people there of our people, and we're there for 70 years, and then the king of that far off land where we've been taken says, you guys can go back. Guess what? Most of us aren't coming back. I'm not coming back. Right? I'd be like a couple months away from being 110. And even if I was alive, I probably would not be up for the journey. Right? It's like, you know what? I'll just stay here. Let me die in exile. I don't want to go back and build anything. Right? And so you think about it. For, for most of us in this room, if we were taken away and came back in 70 years, we wouldn't be coming back. It'd be our children. And our, even for most of us, our children would then be pretty old too. It'd be grandchildren, even great-grandchildren of those who were taken away into exile. And so these are people, what kind of consciousness are they growing up with? Have we been able to hold on to our identity as God's people for those 70 years? So First and Second Chronicles is written to those people. You know, when we ask those existential questions, who am I? The chronicler saying, this is who you are. That's why he starts all the way back at Adam. That's why the genealogies matter. They're not just a bunch of names for us to skip over on the way to the real stuff. If we were one of those people, we'd be looking at that and seeing like, okay, yep, there it is. There it is. And that gets all the way down to me. It's telling me where I came from. It's telling me who I am, which helps me understand what I'm supposed to be and what I am supposed to do. So 
Where we tend, when we look at genealogies, we, we hear things like proper name, place name, backstory stuff, right? I'm pretty, I like you, but I'm mad at you for some reason. And if you haven't seen the Lego movie, I'm very sorry. It is like five years old. But instead of just hearing like generic things that don't have anything to do with what he's actually saying, you're just going, it's just a bunch of names. I don't even know what any of this means. These genealogies are actually key to understanding the point of First and Second Chronicles. It was written to these people who needed to know who they are. It goes all the way from Adam all the way forward to them, the people who had returned from exile. It's why it traced the kings particularly. You know, okay, here was this person. God made him king. He is the one who is the rightful ruler of God's people in God's place. So they're God's people. And they're God's people who have very recently returned to God's place. So there's who are we, but then where are we? They're now back in Jerusalem. And it's not just like you can just go back home because you love Philadelphia so much or because you love Jerusalem so much. And I know you've always longed for the beauty that's there. It wasn't beautiful. It had been destroyed. They weren't sent back just to live there because it was cool or because they needed room wherever they happened to be. And it's like, you know what, you just go back over there for a while. It was with a divine mandate to rebuild. Not just the city, not just the city walls as we'll see in Ezra and Nehemiah, but the temple to rebuild the house for the Lord. And when we understand that that is part of the chronicler's goal, to encourage them to build the temple, to do the work that's in front of them to do, no matter the obstacles that they face, it's important for them to understand what it means to live in God's place. It's not just this far-off city that they weren't born in and have only heard stories about. It's the place of God's presence. It's the place where he put his name. There is a huge emphasis in Chronicles on the Ark of the Covenant, which is the symbol of God's presence. Now, I learned from mentioning the Ark of the Covenant, I think in the one in 1 Samuel, that I need to make a clarifying comment for some of the kids. The Ark of the Covenant is different than the Ark of that Noah went in, okay? So it's, the, I know, right? But it's necessary. So there were, there's an ark in Genesis, which is a really big boat that Noah and his family and all the animals went on. This ark of the covenant is not a boat that lives in the temple. It's a box, okay? It's a box that had some special things in it that were symbols of God's work, But what made it special, what made it so that if you looked into it, you would die, what made it so that if you touched it, you would die, was that it was the symbol, it was the place of God's presence. You remember back in 1 Samuel, Samuel's sons actually took the Ark of the Covenant with them to a battle. And the Philistines were really afraid when they heard the shout, and they said, a God has come into the camp. That's almost how the people of Israel thought about it. It's like, this is the representation of God's presence with his people. So there's a huge emphasis on the Ark of the Covenant, which was the symbol of God's 
presence with his people. It's what had lived in the middle of God's people as they traveled from Egypt to the promised land. They built the tabernacle around it, and it would live right in the middle of all the tribes of Israel as they would camp four on each side of the Ark of the Covenant. God dwelling in the midst of his people. And there's also a huge emphasis on the temple where the Ark of the Covenant would live for generations. The temple being that physical symbol in a physical place in Jerusalem of where God has said, I'm going to put my name there. That is the place of my presence. So 1 Chronicles 13 through 16, over four chapters, tells us the story of David bringing the Ark to Jerusalem. 1 Chronicles 17, which Natalie read for us, is about David's desire to build the temple and God's promise to him. Then the second half is about David's response of thanksgiving. And in that, in verse 9, the Lord says, I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more that they would have no more enemies. Verse 10, he says, I will subdue all your enemies. So God is going to appoint a place for his people. And for his people who've just come home to that place, that's an extreme comfort to know that God hasn't abandoned his place. He hasn't abandoned his people. He is still present. He is still active, working for his glory through his people. And so you have chapters 22 through 29 of 1 Chronicles that in great detail talk about the preparations David made for building the temple. Then 2 Chronicles 2 through 7. So you have another six chapters covers the building of the temple by Solomon, its furnishings, the Ark of the Covenant being brought into the temple, Solomon blessing the people, Solomon's prayer of dedication, all the sacrifices in dedicating the temple, the Lord's response, the presence falling down in cloud and fire and showing that God was pleased with their offerings. And the Lord's response with a conditional covenant telling Solomon, if you follow my ways, you will be in this place. I will put my name on this place forever. This is way more than 2 Samuel said about all these things. Why? Well, remember, Chronicles is being written to the exiles who have now returned to God's place. He's writing so that they will hold on to God's promise and live for God's glory. So the message of 1 Chronicles is about God's people in God's place who are there according to God's promise. Because they're like, okay, I'm one of the people of Israel. I'm part of God's people. I'm now living in God's place. How did we get here? I mean, sure, Cyrus made a decree and we went on a trip. So that's how we got here. But how did we get here? They got here by the grace of God. Because God makes it very clear in the prophets, the Lord didn't choose Israel because Israel was something. Israel was nothing. 
And even down to today, God doesn't choose us because we're something. Oh, look at that person. Man, there's so much I'll be able to do with them because of all the skills they possess. That's not why God chooses us. He chooses us in his grace, in his love, in his mercy. How did they get here? They got here through unconditional promises to Abraham and to David. An unconditional promise, and I think it was Aaron, you talked about this too, right? The unconditional promises and conditional promises. An unconditional covenant or a conditional covenant. Unconditional means there are no conditions. God says, this is what I'm going to do. Period. A conditional promise or a conditional covenant is, I will do this if you do that. So the promises to Abraham, the promises to David, those are unconditional. God told Abraham, I'm going to make of you a great nation. And from your offspring, all the earth will be blessed. He told David, a son of yours will be on the throne forever. There were no conditions, no ifs, ands, or buts. But then there were conditional covenants, conditional promises like the ones with Moses and God's people as they were in the wilderness, as they were going into the promised land. He had promised land to Abraham, but then when the covenant is made with Moses, there were conditions, and you may remember that, all the blessings and curses in Deuteronomy. Blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience. Well, anybody reading Samuel or Kings or Chronicles would have plenty of information to know that God's people did not keep their end of the covenant. It's filled with disobedience. But then there's also a conditional covenant with Solomon. That if you follow my ways, that my name will be in this place forever. My people will be in this place forever. And it's clear that Solomon didn't and the ones who followed him did not follow in his ways. So the exile makes a lot of sense because of God's promise. It's kind of like way back at the beginning. Adam and Eve are put out of God's place because of their disobedience, their refusal to live under his rule. And now you have God's people in the exile put out of God's place again. But God keeps working and he brings his people home. So they're God's people. They're living in God's place and it's because of God's promise. It's according to God's promise. That's why they're there. And they're there for God's glory. So when you're asking, you know, where is this all going? What are we supposed to be doing? Well, in the short term, these people who would be the first readers of Chronicles are supposed to rebuild the temple and are supposed to live according to God's law. They're supposed to worship him. They're supposed to live righteously. And they're supposed to declare his glory to the nations. That's what they are supposed to do, to live for God's glory and to declare his glory. So that's the message. It's about God's people living in God's place according to God's promise for God's glory. So how does this connect to Jesus? Well, Jesus makes us God's 
people. So they were God's people according to his promise, but Jesus is the one who would pay the price for their sin and for ours. So when they're asking, who are we? How do we become this? How do we stay God's people? How do we stay in God's good graces and not get sent into exile? It's not anymore by their obedience or disobedience. It's by the sacrifice of Jesus. Jesus is the one who has purchased by his own blood a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation for his glory. Jesus makes us God's people, and he can do that because Jesus is God's place. So what does that mean? Well, Jesus is God's place. We had the tabernacle, we had the temple, it was destroyed, and then another temple was built on the same place. But you remember when Jesus was on the earth and he was disputing with people in the temple, what did he say? Destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. And then we're told, by the way, he was talking about the temple of his body. Right? And they were confused in the moment and going like, wait a minute, it took 44 years to build this. We, you, how can you build it in three days? Who do you think you are? But they didn't understand. If the temple was the place of God's presence, when Jesus, God in the flesh, is here on the earth, he is the place of God's presence. He was the dwelling place. God became man. The word became flesh. And dwelt among us. He tabernacled with us. He was present to bless. And through his own body. Giving his own body on the tree. To save us. So Jesus is God's place. When he was on the earth. He was the place of God's presence. But Jesus isn't only God's place. Jesus prepares God's place. When you think about us being God's people by his grace. Jesus promised his disciples in John 14, said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, you may be also. This is the heartbeat of the whole Bible. God living with his people. I mean, you think all the way back to Adam and Eve in the garden. They were dwelling with unhindered fellowship with God himself. That was lost through sin, but God keeps coming after his people. He talked with Abraham as a friend of God. He allowed Jacob to see his face and live, though Jacob was anything but worthy of doing that. He allowed Moses to talk with him. And to see his glory so much so that his face was shining when he went back to the camp. God lived in the middle of his people Israel as they traveled. And then in the middle of his people in Jerusalem in the temple. And now Jesus was on the earth walking in the middle of his people. And making promises that I'm going away for a while but it's going to be good. I'm preparing a place. I'm getting it ready, and the point of this is that you will be with me forever. I go to prepare a place for you. He's prepared a place for us. See, we who should be rejected are welcomed in Christ. 
in that same passage where he said, I'm going to prepare a place for you. He told them, you know the way. And they're like, wait a second, how do we, how do we know the way? And he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. We go through him, and we get to be in God's place forever. We who should be rejected are welcomed because Jesus is God's place, and he has paid the penalty for our sin. And this isn't just for the future. This isn't just that we go, okay, well, one day we're going to live in God's place. Right now, we are God's place on the earth. Jerusalem is not the center of God's place. Philadelphia and no other city, not even New Jersey, is the center of God's place and God's activity. God is at work. God is present in his people. We are called in the New Testament the temple of God. We are God's temple in this age. We are the place where God lives. Are you aware of that as you live day by day? Am I aware of that as I live day by day? By God's grace, not because I'm so great or did a magic thing to make it happen. God, by his spirit, lives in us. There's certainly a future aspect that's going to be even better than this, but it's a present reality too. We are being built, Paul said in Ephesians 2, into a dwelling place for God by the Holy Spirit. So Jesus makes us God's people. Jesus is God's place. Jesus prepares God's place for us because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise. How did we get here? By grace, through faith in Christ. 2 Corinthians 1.20 tells us, and we've mentioned this a few times in the series already, that all God's promises find their yes in Jesus. So all the promises about a place, all the promises about what the sacrifices will do, all the promises about a forever king, all the promises about God's people, every one of them is fulfilled in Jesus. And we get in on this. We become part of of the story because Jesus has included us by his grace. That at one point we heard the good news that we were lost and because of our sin we were separated from God and had no hope of being with him. But then Jesus, according to God's promise, came and he lived the perfect life that none of us have lived. That he never sinned. That he always did what was right. And that on a dark, dark day that was the best day in history for all the rest of us, Jesus died on the cross in our place, taking all our sins. First Peter tells us he bore our sins in his own body on the tree. He took every one of them so that everyone who turns from their sins and trusts in him, who hears this good news, says, oh, I'm guilty on my own. I could never get back on my own. I could never hope to do enough on my own. There's no like, well, I'll start being good tomorrow. Even if we tried, we couldn't do it. But Jesus gives us his forgiveness, and not just forgiveness of our sins, but his righteousness. So that when we stand before God, we can be confident we will be accepted 
as his people. Not because of what we have done, but because of what Jesus has done for us. Jesus makes us God's people. Jesus is God's place and he's preparing for us God's place. Because Jesus is the fulfillment of God's promise and Jesus is the radiance of God's glory. Hebrews 1 begins, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he, even now, upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. This is who Jesus is. God in the flesh, God in his glory, come to save us. And he has gone away for a while and sent his spirit to live in us, and he will come again. Think about what the plan was from the very beginning and what do we hear at the very end of the story? Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, listen, behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. That day is really coming. We get to be part of it through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ who laid down his life for us. So even as we read way back in the beginning, beloved, we are God's children now. It hasn't appeared yet what we will be, but we will be like him. Because we will see him as he is. So as we're thinking about us, and we can see how this would be encouraging to the original recipients, but who are we? Who am I? Who are you? Are you in Christ? If you are in Christ, if you are trusting in his sacrifice for your sins, you are God's child right now. And no one, nothing can ever take that away because you are in him. Christ can never be separated from the Father. And if we are in Christ, we can never be separated from his love. So are we living in the awareness that we are part of God's people? So that when the culture says, you guys are nuts, you're crazy, you need to get in line, we're like, "Ah, okay, you can't touch me with that. That can't hurt me. 
It doesn't matter what I lose because I have Christ. Are we aware that we are God's dwelling place now, the place where he lives, where he's at work to make us holy and to declare his glory to the nations? Are we aware that what's coming for us, no matter what is happening right now, the long view of our story is living with God and all his people in the new heavens and the new earth with no sorrow and no trouble forever and ever and ever. That God is preparing a place and it's going to be perfect. And with all that in mind, are we feeling the freedom that we have in Christ and through the power of the Holy Spirit to live for his glory now without fear? God's people will live in God's place under God's good rule according to God's promise and for his glory forever. It's what was intended from the beginning. It was prefigured in the nation of Israel. It's being fulfilled even now in Jesus for our good and for God's glory. Even now, God is calling for himself a people from every tribe, every tongue, every nation to sing worthy is the lamb around his throne forever. And since that day is really coming, we can endure insults. We can endure hardship now. Since that day is really coming, we can follow Jesus and lay down our lives each day to live for God's glory and in obedience to him. It's why we can hold the things of this life loosely. Here, as the author of Hebrews said, we have no lasting city. So I don't know if there will be a Philadelphia in the new heavens and the new earth, but if there is one, it won't be like the one we're in now. It'll be better. A lot better. We seek a city that has foundations, whose builder and maker is God. We who are called to be God's people, who will live in his place forever, are called now to live for his glory. And we can do this We can do this through Christ by the power of the Holy Spirit. We're God's children now and we will see him as he is. So we seek to live according to the values of that future kingdom, not the values of our transient, distracted age. We live for what will last forever, not what will pass away in a moment and will be burned up in the end. We are called even now to declare his glory among the nations and one day we will live with God and all his people forever. What grace. What a savior. Let's pray. Oh God, this is too big for us. We are not enough for it, but we thank you that Jesus is enough. That his death was more than enough to pay for all our sins. And that his resurrection was more than powerful enough to guarantee life both now and forever for everyone who hopes in him. So would you help us to be assured of that good news? Just as your people a couple thousand years ago needed, or thousands of years ago, needed to be assured that they were your people in your place according to your promise for your glory, we find ourselves in a similar situation. We need to know who we are. We need to know how we got here. We need to know where this is all going so that we can know what we need to do now. And so I ask for each one of us that you would bring clarity 
where there's not clarity, where we're just kind of floating through life, doing the next thing in front of us, not mindful of who we are because we're in Christ, not mindful of the presence and power and the spirit of the Spirit in us. Oh God, would you work in us? And then would you work through us for the good of our city and for your glory? Would you do these things by your mercy, which is new every morning to us? In Jesus' name, amen.